Friends, if I've had a chance to meet you, my name's Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at Central City. Just FYI, kids are welcome to worship at any time. But if they're interested in Children's Church or City, city Kids, it's uh, happening um, out near the front. And they're welcome to go there now if they haven't already. But they're also welcome to stay. I'll try to be as uh, interesting as possible, I promise. We're currently in a series called uh, uh, Dealing with Doubt. And at the beginning of this series, we gave you an opportunity to just uh, come as you are and uh, lay out uh, whatever it is that you're uh, wrestling with. So we sent out a, an anonymous survey where you could just share with us your experience of doubt. So today, we've collected a variety of answers to a number of different questions. I'm going to share with you one of those questions we asked was, what specifically have you wrestled with? What are like your specific doubts or questions that have caused stress in your Christian walk or in your life? And uh, we had 34 people take the survey and 18 people answered that question in particular. And most of those were answers. Out of those 18, there was a couple of no or NA or something like that. But, you know, so there's not quite 18 responses, but you get the point. So here, I want to share with you the actual real answers. Uh, I didn't correct any grammar or anything like that. Just what people actually put in the survey for the sake of transparency. It's anonymous um, and it could have been from someone uh, in our community or someone who just saw it online. We don't know. But here's some of the real doubts that people are struggling. I put them into categories, um, not necessarily perfect categories, just help us think through. So there's a number of questions relating to just the Bible. Here's what people had to say. Um, someone said, I'm unsure if the Bible is inerrant. Another person uh, wrote something around just the difficulty of interpretation. There's so many different interpretations, the different passages. How do you make sense of that? Just seems kind of ridiculous. Other people just asked the question about Christian teachings in the Bible and how they've caused so much pain over the years. And it's true. It's uh, the Bible has been used to bring about really terrible things. So what does that say about the Bible? Legitimate doubts and questions relating to the Bible. The next group that we saw is that uh, people had doubts or questions around human suffering, a number of things. Um, someone put just understanding random suffering, like kids dying or kids suffering or families grieving and extreme loss. Other people raised a very popular and historic question. If God truly loves his people, how can he let awful things happen? You know, if God is all powerful and all good, why, why do bad things happen? To good people, but I think it's a bigger question than that. Why do bad things happen even to bad people if God is all loving? After that, we saw questions, interestingly enough, and this was something that we were actually probably going to do a whole series on. We started talking about this at our last worship planning meeting, but there's a lot of questions about uh, prayer. Why are so many prayers go unanswered? And, um, and a variety of thoughts around that, um, especially the ones that are easily answered with those around them and just wrestling with prayer in general. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with prayer, but a number of people were asking questions around prayer. The next one I just put into kind of a, a, a group of just theological questions, theological doubts. And one of them had to do with the atoning sacrifice and a very, very uh, academic doubt here, very complicated uh, that we maybe we'll, we'll probably deal with uh, Jesus's atoning sacrifice at some point in a sermon series, but a question around that. Someone else said, I doubt homosexuality is a sin and still struggle with conflicting feelings and thoughts, feeling I can't share that. I can't be honest about where I stand on, on issues around LGBTQ individuals. And then someone else just wrote sci uh, the science of heaven. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's one of these questions that people are asking. The next category had to do with, uh, it was just one question, but I think it actually sums up probably a lot of people's doubts. It was just had to do with myself. Someone said, am I doing what I should be doing? I don't know. Like, I think that actually captures quite a bit of the doubt that I've experienced in people's lives. It's like, I, I don't not even necessarily doubting God. I'm just doubting my, like, I don't know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I have all of these doubts and uncertainty. Doubt, of course, the most simplest definition is just uncertainty. I'm just not sure. I don't know. And then the last one is pretty uh, typical. It's just God in general. 
You know, is God real at all? Or is he some construct we developed over time as a way to deal with the inevitability of death? Very popular philosophical theory around the, the human creation of God. You probably don't, didn't go to church expecting to hear like legitimate, difficult questions, regard, but welcome to Central City. Um, or was God so active in the early human history but doesn't seem active now? It's just really the question like, is God even real? Is God really active? Is God doing anything? So these are like the real doubts that people we don't know who, put up there. And there's all kinds of categories relating to the Bible, human suffering, prayer, theological questions, myself, God in general. And I'm sure the list could go on if we had time to really sit down and ask you, what doubts have you struggled with? What doubts are you currently struggling with? What doubts are you seeing someone struggle with that you don't even quite understand? So that was the doubts we got. And it would take a while to work through each one of these because each has a response. Um, some are easier than others, but all of them are real doubts and real struggles. But before I go on, I'm, uh, I'm going to do something risky, and I'm going to do one more survey, okay? I'm curious if any of you can relate to one or more of these doubts. I'm just curious. Pretty much most of you. I can too. I've wrestled with questions like these. Um, maybe not all of these questions, but questions certainly in each of these categories. And Here's what I want this community to be about. I want this community to be a me too community. When someone admits a struggle or admits failure or admits doubts, instead of judging them, looking down on them or viewing them as weak, which we also asked how, how Christians view people with doubts and those, that's how the answers came in. As someone that they look down on, someone who's weak or who doesn't have it all together. Instead of doing that, instead of being known for that, we, I want us to respond me too. Oh, you struggle with doubts? Me too. Oh, you've messed up and made failures? Me too. You're saying you don't have all the answers? Me too. <laughs> and here's the best part. Each one of you who raised your hand and said, I've struggled with one of these, you know, or something else, you're still here today, you know? You're at church. And I don't know what brought you. I don't know who brought you, whether it was your choice or you got dragged along. I don't know. But you're here. You made it, which is in itself a step of faith. And so... Today, there's no way to deal with all of these doubts um, in this particular series, but we are going to deal with some of them in, in, in the coming year and the coming years together. The, the truth is, is that most of these doubts don't have easy answers. They're complicated and they're messy and they're difficult. Um, and, and there isn't, I wish there was just one answer I could give to all of them. You know, like, uh, I don't know if any of you grew up in church, but there was like the classic Sunday school answer. Anyone know what it is? Yes, Jesus. I was like, all of these questions, we could just say Jesus. And like, sort of, but it's not that simple. But it, I mean, it is, but it is, it's complicated. And uh, so there isn't like one answer to all of the questions that we have relating to faith. Um, but there is one response. There is one thing that I want to talk about today that works regardless of the question you're wrestling with, regardless of the doubt you might have regardless of what you're happening. And that's what I want to talk about today, specifically this thing called wisdom. You see, in the book of James, we see one of the few places in the New Testament where doubt is mentioned. Because doubt is, uh, if, you, if you go to the Bible Gateway or something like that, and you search for, in the NIV, the number of times doubt appears, a lot of times it's, it's not used as like a theological conversation around doubt. It's used just as like, I doubt that or whatever. And so it's not discussed theologically a lot in the New Testament. James is one of the places that talks about doubt. And he describes it just like we looked at it two weeks ago. If you were here, we looked at the story of Peter walking on water, getting swallowed up by doubt, and he fell in, in the lake. Well, James describes it like that. He says, James 1, 6, he says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed 
by the wind. James 1.6. And honestly, that's, that's what doubt feels like, just getting tossed back and forth. He goes on to say in verse 7 through 8, he says that that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And that's what doubt feels like, unstable. And when I've listed off these doubts and I was praying over them and looking at them and the, the people's real responses, I was reminded of some of my own struggles and some of my own questions. I remember some essays I had to write in undergrad and seminary and some I just wrote for fun because I'm that kind of guy on like human suffering. And I remember one essay I wrote, I got to the end of it and I was like, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. Like I like convinced, like I talked myself out of it and I freaked me out. I I saved that somewhere in a deep dark hole on my computer. I probably don't even have it anymore. And I was like, I, so I remember, like, that's what it felt like. Everything was so unstable. But James suggests that there is a response. He, he doesn't think that stability comes from having the right answer but, or, or necessarily the solution, but something else. Jump back a verse to James, uh, just a few verses in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James points back to wisdom, this idea of wisdom, the wisdom that is available in the difficulties of life and the mysteries of life. And so while we don't have a quick fix, I do want to suggest that whatever question you're asking, wisdom is the next best step. Wisdom. More than just fortune cookie wisdom or clever poverty, but real wisdom that we're going to look at today. So I want to take a closer look at wisdom and all about, uh, to do that, we're going to have to go to the back to the original book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, we have an event. You can follow along in there and the scripture passage will be available as well as on the screen. Now, before we go on, we have doubts, we have questions, and we're looking for answers. We've all experienced some level of uncertainty and sometimes it feels like there's no answer in sight. If you haven't been there, you will be. So keep that in mind as we look at what wisdom is all about. It's, uh, we're going to start with Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says this. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. I'm going to pause right there. Now, so if I'm reading this correct, um, supposedly wisdom is out on the streets trying to get my attention. That has not been my experience. Like I'm, I feel like I'm always searching for the wisdom to understand a situation. Here it says that wisdom is actually searching for me. Now, I'm not saying scripture is wrong or anything like that, but that has not been my experience. My experience feels like wisdom is hiding in some dark alley, and I have to like spend my life searching it out. And even if I can find it, it's still a struggle. So when I read scripture, and I sense that my experience doesn't line up with what I'm reading, I have to pause, and I have to, and I encourage you guys to do the same thing as you read scripture, and you're like, that has not been my experience. Wisdom does not seem so readily accessible. And I think there's a suggestion to why that is, and I'll get to that in a second, but before we do, this isn't the only place where that seems to suggest that wisdom is just easily accessible to anyone who needs it. That's what James was saying earlier. He said this, if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Like, it's the same idea. Like, wisdom, if you need it, it's there. That's, that's the impression we're, beginning, we're giving, being given in Scripture, regardless of our experience. That's what's being said. And God is just this so generous with wisdom. Like, anyone who wants wisdom, you want some wisdom? Here's some wisdom. You want some wisdom? You can have some wisdom. Like, wisdom for all. Without finding fault, you qualify. You can have it if you want it. Now, while we might say, and here's where I think the problem becomes, while we 
we might say we want wisdom, sometimes I think we're actually looking for something else. So I say I want wisdom, but what I really want is a solution. You see, and those are different. I say I want wisdom, but what I'm really looking for is answers. Notice what God says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask. He doesn't say this. If any of you lacks the answer to your question, okay? It's not a, that's not an adequate translation. He doesn't say, if any of you lacks the solution to your problem, you should ask God. He doesn't say, if any of you lacks the answers to all of your doubts, it isn't, that's, not what it, that's not what's being said here. So I want to I suggest that today asking for wisdom is different from simply asking for an answer to a question. And it's different from just simply asking for a solution to your doubts. And here's why. And it gets to what I think is a good definition of wisdom. Wisdom might not give you the right answers, but it will help you ask the right questions. Wisdom might not give you the solution to your doubts or the questions that you have, but it does help us understand the true nature of our doubts which I think is the first step. And often the cause of much of our distress is that we just don't understand what's going on. So wisdom, in other words, helps us interpret the world we live in from God's perspective. Proverbs 8 says this, that wisdom exists since the beginning and it's wrapped up in the very fabric of a creation. It's Proverbs 8, if you jump ahead to verses 24 to 30, it's one of my favorite passages. Here is wisdom being personified as this, uh, this woman. And she says, where, where there were no depths, depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields or the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. So here's, here's wisdom being personified as this woman. She says, says, I was there when all of this was getting created. I was like God's assistant, which means she understands the very intricate workings of the world we live in, that she understands what it means to understand, to look at this world, this through God's perspective. And we can interpret it through that creator's perspective. Andy uh, Stanley's a megachurch pastor down in Atlanta, and he was uh, trying to put together this book around what does it mean to help people grow in their faith. And so he gathered a bunch of his leaders together, and he asked them a question around um, a simple question to help them figure out what it means to help other people grow in their faith. And he began to discuss them with this team, and he asked the room of people this question. He says, what fuels the development of faith? What are the ingredients that, when stirred together, result in greater confidence in the person and promises of God? In other words, like, what will help us increase our confidence in God? So they started making lists, and they took those lists and put them into categories. And over time, his team was able to figure out this, 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 these different categories. And one of the categories, you can read all of them in this book, Deep and Wide, but one of them he called was pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances. He says that when people describe their faith journeys, they always include, they seem to always include some kind of event that could be described as this pivotal circumstance or this defining moment. Maybe you've had a pivotal circumstance or defining moment. Now here's what's interesting. Some of these defining moments are good. And some of these defining moments in people's faith are really terrible. You know, some of them are good, like uh, being awarded a scholarship or discovering a new job opportunity or getting married or having a baby or receiving a promotion or a job transfer or something. It's a positive defining moment. But other people have found that one of the formative moments in their faith was actually really painful, like the death of a friend or of a family member or some divorce or a prolonged illness or a betrayal by a friend. And it was in that painful moment that it became this defining moment in their faith. What he found, though, was that both as he talked to these, all these different people, and I think we'd find the same thing if we talked with all of you, that both the positive and negative defining moments helped different people grow in their faith. But here's what's interesting. Those same kind of circumstances 
both positive and negative, helped other people fall away in their faith. Like they became the source of a lot of their doubts and eventually leaving God. So defining moments, both positive and negative, what's interesting is they can be the catalyst of both growth and the catalyst of doubt, which means it's less about the defining moment and it's more about how we interpret that moment. Faith grows or falls because of pivotal circumstances, but because of the way we interpret those pivotal circumstances. Our faith grows or falls not because of the circumstances in our lives, but whether we've interpreted those wisely. This is where wisdom comes in. So uh, Andy Stanley gives this example. Here's uh, Steve Jobs. He's the founder of Apple, uh, uh, passed away uh, somewhat recently. And um, he, when he was young, had a very pivotal experience in his life that led to a crisis of faith. In the cover of July 12, 1968 edition of Life magazine, there was a picture of two children in a war-torn region near Nigeria. Uh, the region in Nigeria has maintained, uh, maintained its independence for only about two and a half years before being integrated back into Nigeria. More than one million people died from either civil war or famine during that time. So at 13, Steve Jobs stumbles on this magazine cover and he's struck by it. It becomes a pivotal moment in his life. Steve Jobs' a biographer, Walter Isaacson, uh, says this in his story, uh, in his book. He says, Stephen took it, the magazine. He took it to Sunday school and confronted the church's pastor, and he asked him a question. He said, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise before I do it? And the pastor answered, yes, God knows everything. Then Job pulled out the life cover and asked, well, does God know about this, and what's going to happen to these children? It's an honest question. In fact, some of you uh, in the survey asked the very same question, didn't you? What is God doing about all this suffering? And how can God be real and how can God be loving when this happens? Well, for Steve Jobs, the answer he got from that particular pastor wasn't helpful. And according to his biography, after that conversation, Steve Jobs never went back to church. And he found it impossible somehow, and I don't know the details of his inner workings of his life, to reconcile this picture of war and suffering with what he had learned about Christianity from his Sunday school classes. He saw tragedy and he interpreted it to mean that God was either wasn't real or didn't care or it didn't matter or that it wasn't worth his time. Like he had this pivotal circumstance, but the way in which he interpreted that circumstance and this reality in this world, the way he interpreted it led him to say, I don't want to believe in God anymore. Now, it wasn't that picture that ruined his faith. It might have been the pastor, depending on what he said, but probably not. It was the way in which he interpreted it. So consider another example. Andy Stanley told this story, and then he told this story about uh, how he took his, uh, his 10, 12, and 14-year-old kids on a mission trip, and they visited the muddy, sewage-saturated paths of a slum in Kenya. Um, something like this. The slum is about three miles in size and serves as the home to over uh, a half million people, most of whom live in six-by-eight-foot shacks. Even the public toilets cost money, so those who can't afford the toilets go to the bathroom in plastic bags, throw it into the river, which is also their water supply. He took his kids there and basically gets Father of the Year Award. What a great place to take your children. But you know what? He didn't shy his children away from the real suffering that was happening in this world. But this, his children, he looked at this slum, and uh, the slum looked a lot like the children on the cover of this Life magazine that caused Steve Jobs to lose his faith. But Andy's kids, seeing them in person, didn't lose their faith. He says they came home motivated to do something about it. They came home burdened with this holy desire to change the world. They looked at the suffering and they felt God call them to something. It actually strengthened their faith in this backward sort of way. They realized that there's so much suffering in the world and they, they felt the heart of God in that suffering and say that God too breaks 
with this suffering. What I'm saying is, is like how we interpret it actually will determine whether it's healthy or not. When we talk about doubt or questions or, or difficulties in life, you can look at human suffering in the world and you can say, well, there must not be a God. Or you can look at human suffering in the world and you say, man, I, I think God might really want me to do something about it. That maybe God doesn't like this either. And you can do the same with each one of the other questions. Maybe you've had a similar experience like this. Maybe you've looked at the violence and the hatred in the world and you've walked away with a desire to do something because you knew that God hated it just as much as you. Maybe even, well, technically more than you. Did you know that? That the injustice in the world that just drives you crazy, that God hates it more than you? That God's heart breaks for it more than you? And that you believe that God is at work and that God is calling you to make a difference? And that you know that God will give you the strength to make a difference? And it's actually in that context where you realize that this is too big for me to do anything about. I need God to be real or I can't even address it. Now, you might not have the answers or the solutions, but you've got this sense of hope. And because you trust that God is in control and that you trust that God will show you what's next, that's wisdom. Wisdom might not give you the answers, but it helps us interpret the world with a sense of hope. And without it, we'll always be prone to give into all kinds of uncertainty, which feels like that tossing of the waves. Friends, wisdom isn't the only uh, character presented in Proverbs, and wisdom isn't the only character who's out shouting in the streets trying to get our attention. This is part of the problem. Uh, Wisdom is shouting in the streets, but so is this woman called Folly, foolishness. If you read the rest of Proverbs, you'll see that Folly, who is also personified as a woman, is out in the streets trying to get our attention just as much as wisdom. Now, I have to pause and I have to spend some time uh, so we can better understand what's actually going on in this Proverbs. This is actually my favorite part, so I hope you'll find it interesting as well. You see, in order to understand this, we have to understand the audience. And this book, at least large parts of it, are written from the perspective of a father talking to his son, okay? So this father is talking to this young man. Now, the fact that he's addressing a young man who is naive and who's lacking wisdom and who needs to grow up, you know, like this is a significant part of understanding the book of Proverbs. And it's not by accident. So let me just, for the rest of you who uh, in the room who don't understand a father-son conversation um, and maybe have uh, either are not a young man or have never been a young man, let me, let me bring you into that world a little bit. Um, a father, no matter how holy or righteous or loving, he's still a guy. And the illustrations he uses um, might be unusual. Now, as someone who was once a young man, young men are, how do I put this? Well, there are a lot of things, but they're definitely sensual is maybe a word I could use. Easily excited. Anyone uncomfortable yet? Maybe, un- okay, maybe unsure how to deal with their feelings and their attractions. Okay, yeah. Okay, so as uncomfortable as that is, that's the audience. A dad is talking to his son, and we're allowed into this conversation. It's a beautiful thing. Specifically, he's trying to help his son understand the difference between wisdom and folly, right? And understanding that he's a young, easily excited, you know, he describes folly as this seducing, scandalous woman. And he even says that Folly is this unruly woman. She sits on her front porch and in prominent places of the city, and she calls out to the young men walking by. She says this, this is Proverbs 9, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now she's speaking in code. (laughs) Not going to explain what she's talking about, but it seems like most of you get it. Folly is scandalous, enticing. And this is what I love about Proverbs. The father not only paints folly as this attractive and scandalous woman, he paints wisdom as this woman as well. And the father explains to his son, 
Don't go after women who try to lure you in secret, but chase down wisdom who's also beautiful, but in a much more holy way. Can you imagine this sort of father-son conversation? Now, now, if you aren't a young man or, or you never were, this doesn't mean this passage isn't for you, but just like any other literature, we have to understand where it's coming from and in order to understand what God was actually trying to say through the book of Proverbs. So the point, I think, is obvious. Wisdom and folly are a lot less like things we learn and more like things we fall in love with, things that we're attracted to, things that we move into a relationship with. And folly is attractive because it's scandalous. It's like falling in love with someone who's already married, or somebody who's not available. And you don't need to be a young man to understand what that feels like to give in to sort of scandalous, hurtful emotions. But wisdom, she's attracted too, but she requires commitment. With wisdom, we're talking about marriage, marriage. Wisdom requires commitment, and she wants to be seen as, as worth more than anything else in the world. This is what she says in chapter 8. Wisdom is speaking. She says, choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. That's the language of marriage vows. She's worth more than all the gold in the world. So I want you to stop and ponder for a second on, on the one thing that maybe you're struggling with or have struggled with those doubts and those questions, that one question you wish you had an answer to, the problem that you wish you had a quick fix for. Friends, God, God doesn't promise to give us the right answers or the solutions. God promises to give wisdom to those who ask. And I think, this is what I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think sometimes we want wisdom to do a house call. You know, we don't want to live with wisdom. We want wisdom to just like stop by for a little bit and help fix our problems and then move on. Friends, wisdom doesn't do house calls. She ain't that kind of girl. She's a homemaker. Proverbs says she's set the table and she's invited you in. Folly sets the bed and invites you in. But, but wisdom says, no, let's set the table. Let's get to know each other. Let's spend some time together. Let me give you an example of this is what I'm talking about here in case you haven't gotten it. So I meet Alyssa. True story, we met at seminary. We get to know each other. We had a long distance relationship of a couple hours, so we did everything from watching Netflix at the same time while also FaceTiming. I don't know if you've ever done that, but whew, special moments. <laughs> so we decide I'm gonna, I wanna marry her. So I go buy a ring. We actually, we went to Niagara Falls. I'm gonna ask her at Niagara Falls. Um, I, was a, it was a, I didn't do it well. I'm not gonna tell you the whole story. I'll tell you some other time, it was embarrassing. But I end up proposing, but let's just imagine that instead of saying whatever I did say, which also wasn't very good, I say this. I sit down and I pull out the ring and I say, hey, Lisa, I really love you and I really love your perspective in the world and I was just wondering if maybe every once in a while we can hang out and I could pick your brain and you can maybe fix some of my problems. I mean, I don't wanna live with you. I don't wanna invest in the relationship. I just wanna hang out sometimes. Can you just give me the answers? It's not gonna go over well. Sometimes people you know, in, in ministry ask me questions I'll get sit down over coffee or whatever, or in a Bible study. And I don't know if it's real or just perceived, but I feel an obligation to have an answer to almost every question. I don't know if anyone else in the room is like that, but I want to have a simple answer. I want to say like, oh yeah, like I've thought about that question. I've thought about that particular doubt and, and I've studied it enough that I can answer that in like five minutes or less. That's not wisdom. Maybe sometimes after a life of experience, you can boil down a truth into something really simple like that. I don't know. I'm not there yet. Here's what wisdom is. It's saying to that person and say, hey, you know what, that's a really good question. I do have some thoughts on it, but you know what would be great is if we, like, we, we sat down together and I invite my friend wisdom over and we just kind of like started spending life together and we were in it in the long haul. And we just like, you know, not looking for a quick fix or, or house call or anything like that. Just like sit down and like really commit myself to saying, I want to look at the world the way God looks at it and I'm going to take some time. And it's not going to happen overnight. And I just want to, I'm going to wrestle with these things. 
So is it, whatever doubt you've ever wrestled with, if you, if you come at it from that perspective, it's like, okay, well, let's, get, let's get down to it. Let's do it. Let's wrestle with this. Let's talk about it. Let's study it. And you could doubt the inerrancy of Scripture. There are all kinds of interesting questions around that. I have some thoughts that probably make some of you uncomfortable on that, and maybe we'll deal with that at some point. But you doubt the inerrancy of Scripture, you can go in two different directions. You say, well, I'm not going to read the Bible again, you know? Or you can say, okay, let's sit down. Let's bring wisdom to the table. Let's... let's commit our lives to really seeking the Lord out and let's, let's spend more time in Scripture asking questions and reading and researching and looking into it. So, friends, I don't have a quick fix for your doubts and maybe that's disappointing. I don't know. But I do have an invitation. My invitation for you is that we want to be a church where we can commit to wisdom. That we can be a, a church that chooses to sit down with wisdom and say that we want to make this about our lives and we, we want to look at things from the right perspective. We want to interpret reality from from, the, from a true perspective, and we want to take the time it takes to wrestle with that so that we can grow in our faith. And here's the best part. We've been looking at the Old Testament and Proverbs. As we move into the New Testament, which is coming, uh, at, which starts with the stories of Jesus, we, we, we learn that Jesus essentially becomes the embodiment of wisdom. In fact, John 1 says that, that the Word um, was with God and, and was there from the beginning and was right there when everything was being made, just like wisdom is described. But that Word took on flesh and lived amongst us. 1 Corinthians says that Jesus became the wisdom of God for us. And just like wisdom we see um, in, in Proverbs, although Jesus wasn't a girl and so the metaphor breaks down, but just like Jesus, just like wisdom, Jesus is saying like, come, I want, I'll, just like his disciples said, come, I want, let's spend a life together, let's sit down together, let's, let's wrestle with this together. And whenever people ask him difficult questions looking for quick answers, read it. He'd almost always follow up with a question. That's wisdom, speaking in flesh amongst us inviting us into a life where the Holy Spirit can lead us into all truth. That's the invitation we extend today. If you're looking for a place where we can grow together, that's what we're going to be. And even when I offer answers, some of those answers you might disagree with. And I'm okay with that if you're okay with that, but that's just the way it works. What I'm interested in is being in a relationship with you and with wisdom. We can grow in faith together. Let's pray. God, when everything else uh, seems to fall apart, when um, uncertainty begins to swallow us up, when we begin to ask difficult questions and we're not sure what to hold on to, Lord, I ask that even when we are unsure of most things, that you will help us hold tight to that which we are sure of. Lord, I pray that for me as well as for all of us, that that be at least the person and work of Jesus, his message of love, his invitation to follow, his death on the cross that paved a way to have a relationship with you, his hard teachings on loving enemies and forgiving those who wrong you and caring for the poor. Lord, help us hold on to the person and work and teachings of Jesus. Let that be our cornerstone when everything else seems to fall apart. And Lord, in fact, knock everything else down. All of these strange discussions and disagreements around things that often don't matter. Help us just grow in a love for you and help us love others. In fact, Lord, give us a special love for those that we currently can't stand. In your name, Jesus, we pray. All God's people said, amen.